Today, as we begin um, our message, I want to introduce this passage as a most dangerous uh, passage and yet somewhat neglected passage in the uh, scripture as well. It is about how we relate to non-Christian secular world. In our relationship, we all have uh, unbelieving friends, unbelieving uh, co-workers and, and employers. What does scripture guide? And what is Paul's passion when he gives this exhortation? I, I think it's really important for us to have a critical balance of really listening to spiritual, scriptural guidance as it is unfolded to us, rather than sp putting ourselves and meeting into it. So in, in that regard, I would like to start with this overview of the today's passage. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6.14 through 7.1 is a one a bracket of thoughts. Paul's charge for holy living. And it's, it is an inclusio. That by inclusio, it, it, I mean it is a, a, a lit, literary device that Paul's using um, to emphasize a point, emphasize a principle. So it starts with one bookend and ends with the same thing to make the bookends together. So, inclusio. What does the structure look like? It is consists of four parts, and it begins with a key command, and the reasons for the command, and the promises for command, and he makes the Old Testament allusions in there, and he concludes with the same command, uh, a reiteration of that command. It is Paul's pastoral charge for holy living in relating to the unbelieving secular world. And fourth and lastly, it is often misused for abuse principle, as an abuse principle, misguided wrong applications or it is neglected as an irrelevant principle and both are ongoing even to this day. So let's start with uh, looking into the text with these four questions in mind. These questions will frame our mind to understand the text with the mind mindset. Number one, what does it mean? Because we would heard, we have heard that phrase before: "Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers." So we need to define that meaning contextually and clearly, so that we could apply to today's meaning as well. Number two, what are the reasons for this separation of holy living? Number three, what are the promises for this holy living? And number four, how then shall we live as Christ followers in this secular world? So let's start with the what does it mean uh, to not be unequally yoked with, with unbelievers. Um, you think about what it does not mean, especially because there are some misguided principles and wrong applications have been made. Number one, it does not mean we are not to associate with non-Christians. 
And believe it or not, there are people who claim to believe in Jesus Christ who would isolate themselves totally away from the unbelieving world. I mean, from the movies, we are very familiar with the Amish. They have their own economical system. They have all their rules and in a way that movie, the Harrison Ford movie Witness, it's kind of, it makes it beautiful to, to, to live as a community. But absolutely, their way of living Christian life is isolation. They do not use uh, technology and they have this uh, kind of holy principle in their own way. For some reason, they don't use the button. Is it, is it zipper or button? One of those two. That when they make their uh, own clothes as well. But there are, even in America, extremely conservative evangelical Christians who live their life as a rabbit hole Christian, as John Stott mentions. You know, the rabbits have a hole, and they pop their head and look down, and they see a carrot, and they run to it and get the carrot and run back to it. You live with Christian community, you listen to Christian music, you, you listen to Christian uh, watch the Christian entertainment and you have to go to work to make money and you come right back. Oh, I made it safe. You know, Apostle Paul, uh, I have several passages, but I have chosen to share two passages to make sure that it's consistent with what Apostle Paul is writing, especially even people, Christians in Corinth, 1 Corinthians, the first letter of Paul to Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 9 through 11, says this. Oh, by the way, the context for this is there was a believer in a church who sleeps with his stepmother, his father's wife, and in the name of grace, the church condoned it. Didn't do anything. And then Paul said, you need to clean your house and get them out of the church if it's not re repentant. And then lest they misunderstand, he writes, verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral, immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, which means Christian. True believer. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such ones, so that they could repent. The first century church, the believers were the only support system that they had. I don't have this verse, but chapter 14 comes to my mind as well, 1 Corinthians. And there were unbelievers coming into their worship service. And the first Corinthian church, the Corinthian church have had experiences of charismatic experience of speaking in tongue, speaking in a very different languages that people could not understand. And obviously it, it, it was a supernatural gift and they were sensational and this makes the whole service exciting. And Paul advises them not to use the speaking in tongue in public, rather prophesy, meaning speak the word of God clearly so that even the unbelievers 
will cure that and make sense and glorify the Lord. But furthermore, Paul himself, his posture into the world was First Corinthians chapter 9, 20 to 22. He writes this. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are outside the law, meaning the Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, not being, out, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Paul was not running away from the non-Christians and unbelievers. He was running to them. How about our Lord Jesus himself? Um, and Jesus' principle is, it, it also reveals the misunderstanding that, and even that we are not, it does not mean, this passage doesn't mean we're not to work for secular companies or employers or not to have business relations with unbelievers. Because Jesus makes it clear in Matthew 5, 13 through 15. You, meaning the believers in Christ, are the salt of the earth. But if, the, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on, set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under the basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. If every believer are in the church only, rabbit, rabbit hole only, in the soul shaker only, how will be the salt. And if we put the light under the basket in our own Christian home, Christian community, how will the world experience the light of Christ? John 17, verse 15 through 18, Jesus' high priestly prayer, the last prayer that he prays for these disciples not only for his 12 disciples, though all the disciples who are following, including us. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So our church, one of the phrases we clarify our vision, that we are missional people, where God sent people in everyday life. We are to go where non-Christians are there, and secular companies and secular world, that everywhere that salt and light is needed, that we are to be God's sent people as the ambassador of Christ for the ministry of reconciliation. So it is crystal clear. But still, to this day, there are these two poles of extremism, wrong applications. One is obviously to become like the world and to to, to have this insatiable thirst to be thirst to, to be 
relevant and to be liked, liked by the world. And we have a Christian churches like that, hipster Christians. And even their pastor looks very fashionable. And they know what to say and how to say it. The non-Christians will love that environment. But there is so much compromise. Their lifestyle is worldly. They are away from holy living. They are deep in the saturation of the secular culture. On the other hand, and there is escapism, as I mentioned. To simplify things in such a way, simplistic way, rather than simple, Christ-like way. And some of you guys know this, and there is a even controversy as, of, as we speak right now about social justice document. This is a tension between the two. But what's wrong with the document is that they lump into everything in simplistic way of defining what it means to be Christian. Why? Because social justice used to mean uh, something clearly biblical, but nowadays social justice means, mean, can mean anything, including gay rights, including abortion rights, including a, a lot of things. So they throw the baby out with the bathwater and, bath and saying, we are to be very careful against social, social justice in the church. And obviously, many, including my, had major problem with that. Why? When you go to the Old Testament, the people worship God religiously. But what they did in the society, they neglect the poor. They persecuted the widow and the marginalized, and they treat foreigners differently. And the prophets will come, and their message is always, always about justice, to restore the justice for the poor, for the widows and orphans, for the foreigners. The Old Testament language of sojourners. So do not be unequally yoked doesn't mean we could run away from all the non-Christian things. So what does it mean? I'm, I'm sorry. We need to clarify a couple more things. I have at least two more. It does not mean that we are not to have non-Christian non friends altogether. And then, as I mentioned, the people who take this principle in wrong application, they will even go further. Anyone who disagrees, because they are right, airtight, sound doctrine, and they are disassociating themselves from all other even Christians who disagrees with them on non-essentials. By non-essentials, I mean when you think about, about God's salvation, about the deity of Christ, and, and those essential doctrines. And obviously, the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses de deter from those essentials. But other than that, there are so many other areas that people can disagree. We are to keep the unity as brothers and sisters in one Father, one Holy Spirit. I thought this was important before I explain what it means first. Okay. Now, what does it mean? It means uh, this is a key principle that we ought not to go into a yoked relationship with unbelievers. 
So modern people, even, even the farmers, probably don't use yoke anymore. Um, so we need to understand what the yoke is first. Deuteronomy 22, verse 10, from which Paul used this principle, uh, the, the Old Testament law said, do not yoke an ox with donkey. This is a symbolism for Israelites to not mix with other people, other values, so that you would live your sanctified identity as chosen people of God. But you need to think about what yoke is. Yoke is a wooden beam that connects with two animals on the shoulder. So usually, if it works, the similar two oxen, let's just say, and a similar size of oxen, but one with more experienced and one is inexperienced, young, and the, the, uh, the older, uh, experienced uh, ox will guide the younger, still very physically powerful, and they make superb synergy. When Jesus said, take my yoke and learn from me, and Jesus is having that image, imagery for us, that he is guiding us, that his yoke is easy because he's guiding us, teaching us. We are led by Christ. And that he is gentle. But what happens, just imagine this, oxen and donkey, that even size doesn't match, and the ox, ox will be so strong, and then donkey cannot keep up, with the same strength. So when you try to plow the ground, you know, ground, instead of going straight, it ends up going circling around. Let's say donkey doesn't want to go that way. He doesn't have a choice because He's constrained. So that's two principles here, two components that we need to look at. It is inseparable binding relationship. It's not something that temporarily just you just try it and it doesn't work. And number two, there is inevitable constraints, mutual influence in that relationship. Contextually, what is Paul thinking? Corinth, full of idol, idol worship. All kinds of idol worship. And it was culturally acceptable. So to say, hey, you want to go to festival, and that's probably part of idol worship including the idol worship, and there is a male prostitute and female prostitute, uh, this idea of a god of, goddess of fertility. You, you need to appease that goddess, appease God. So that you will have a fuller harvest, uh, healthy babies, because of that, that was going on. Well, if you go to festival or gatherings, what happens is there's a meat served for everyone. The meat that was offered to idols. So if you're mixed with that kind of religious involvement, you're unequally yoked. You cannot be God's distinctively set-apart people. Paul's warning against them. Because after all, the Corinth, Corinth was uh, our modern day Southern California, or maybe even Vegas. You know, whatever you do, 
it stays in Vegas kind of thing, except that Vegas is a place you go and come back, and Corinth is you there and your lifestyle continues. The word Corinthicize meant to fornicate, to have orgies. That's why Paul is be separate. Do not go into binding relationship that you will compromise your Christian difference. Do not think that everything's okay by the name of grace. If our generation is to hear, we need to hear that strong charge of holy living. It's called for holy living. And once again, there is always a generation by generation there's a tilt toward one way or the other. The generation before us might be strong legalism and escapism. Now, in everywhere you go, the church grows when there is so much like relevance and hipster mentality of Christian church doing things there. So therefore, there's no radical difference. The better that you are more like unbelievers, the better, more attractive you would be, it seems like, in this, this day and age as a Christian. In today's world, the immediate uh, concerns, since we don't have idol worship around us, around us uh, in Thailand, this might be very applicable. Remember, uh, uh, Jimmy just mentioned about a tip concerning about the Buddhist culture. So deeply cultural. So we need to be careful about interfaith stuff in the name of gathering uh, you, you really cannot mix there. But primarily, the immediate concerns that I could think about is a Christian getting married with non-Christian. Seriously binding long-term relationship. You cannot get out of it. If you especially uphold Christian, the marriage as God's design for the lifetime, And it is not a contract. There is a serious co constraints into that. Not all business partnership, but seriously binding business uh, partnership has this implication concern as well. Because basically what Paul is going at is unbelievers have a different mindset, different goal, different purpose, different blueprints, you ought to have God-centered view and God-centered value, God-centered goal of your life. And how are you going to compromise if you have a binding relationships? One clarification. And there are people who made a mistake as a believers, who made who married the non-unbelievers? Non that doesn't mean this passage condones the divorce. The uh, Apostle Paul in First Corinthians seven very clearly mentions that if you are already married with a non-Christian, stay married and pray for that person, live out your Christian difference for them, and. Uh, including my mom and dad. My grandma was a Christian, one of the first Christians in Korea. A single mom raised his children during the war time and after the war. And my mom was this a woman's university, the English ma literature major. My dad lied that he would go to church if he get married. He went to church once. 
he eventually, by grace of God, after retirement, when he was 70, mid-70s, finally became a Christian. So this is where rational, rationalization and, and compromise happen. A lot of young people in coming into this. Well, maybe he will become Christian if I really pray hard. Well, if I don't marry her, who's going to make her become Christian? As if we have the right. As if we have a power. John 1, 11 and 12. I mean, John 1, 12. But as many as received them, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in, believe in him. It is not of blood. Just because you're a pastor's son or pastor's daughter, that doesn't mean you become, nor the will of human. Just because you will so hard. During my youth ministry days, we used to call this missionary dating. I'm going to make him Christian. Pray for him. But on a serious note, note, today's passage will reveal how radically, fundamentally different we are. And Jesus calls us to follow him. If anyone does not hate his mother and father, yes, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Following, great, following Christ, we don't merit the grace. He's a free undeserved gift of God but that doesn't mean the cost of discipleship following Christ we are to choose Christ above all things otherwise we're counterfeit we're phony here's a gut wrenching thing the well-meaning bride who's Christian is finally getting married with non-Christian husband. She tried everything. And she prays earnestly. Lord, I don't want to disobey you, but I love this man. I want to be his wife. I tried everything. I don't understand why he doesn't come become Christian. Would you bless our marriage? Please do not ruin my wedding day. That's the typical mentality we could have if we continually rationalize. Right? Basically what, what it really says is God, you are kind of important, but he's far more important than me, than, than you. So I choose him over you. You need to sacrifice yourself, die to yourself, to God. Some of you are parents who have uh, teenage sons and daughters, and maybe even college, and I know one of our couples are excited about their, their daughter getting married. I think I got invitation. I, I think that's what the envelope is for <laughs> this morning. But we ought to be, if we are true Christian, our deepest concern should not be whether my son or daughter will go to Ivy League school or not. At least we have that, that line. 
I went to Berkeley, so at least Berkeley, or I went to UCLA or USC, at least that school. Okay, UCI is final line. <laughs> but I think we, we should really be fearful about their eternal destiny and their marriage without Christ's control and the kingship of God in their marriage and oneness before God if they end up getting married with unbelievers. The second question is what is the central reason for this holy living? Paul blurts out these five rhetorical questions. And obviously, these five rhetorical questions expect a clear negative answer, none. So let me read it this way. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Lawlessness, none. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? None. What accord has Christ with Belial? Belial is another word for Satan. There was a Qumran uh, community in New Testament days. And the Qumran community is the one who um, in 1940s and 50s found a bunch of Dead, dead Sea Scrolls into the there's so many caves there. So their language was Belial. Literally means worthlessness. The worthy one was Christ. Worthless one was Belial, the Satan. None. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? None. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? None. So primary reason all those five questions point to is our identity. Basically, Paul is saying, don't you know, individually and corporately, you are the temple of God. Holy Spirit resides in you. Christ, the head of the church, is residing in the church. We belong to God. So therefore, this separation is not spatial separation. We need not to go to uh, somewhere in Idaho and live into the same neighborhood with make us communal living of some cults have done that, right? but it is spiritual, meaning values. Let's define what it means to be holy first. Um, I know, I want to hold off on that one sec. sec. Third question, what are the promises for this holy living? Uh, verse 16b to, through 18, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they, will, they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean, unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. See, the Old Testament allusions Paul men mentions is from Isaiah 52, Ezekiel 20, and 2 Samuel 7, all points out to this. There is a command. Be ye separate. Come out of them. Come out of amongst, in the midst of them, come out. And 
promises it, then I will be your God and you, you will be my sons and daughters. You will be my people. So this is the, the, the place that I want to define holy. We have this idea, the uh, misconception of a holiness, a holy living, is there something that we need to become like Mother Teresa? Until then, I'm not holy. Oh, don't call me holy. I'm really, I'm far from it. But do, do you know what? If you belong to Christ, you are already holy. Because holiness, in essence, means to set apart. To set apart unto God. That is what it means to be holy. God set us apart from the world to himself. Therefore, we are holy. We're actually saints. I'm going ahead on this. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul calls Corinthians these messed up people who are believers in Christ saints. The Catholic Church made it as St. John and St. James and St. Joseph, you know. But we are all, each one of us, positionally we are saints. We're the holy ones. We're continually being sanctified until Christ comes. The glorification that we will complete that process of sanctification. There are ten apples. You decide to take one apple, set apart for your wife. Your loving, dear wife. Or dear husband. That apple is holy. Because purpose is for special one. But obviously, to set apart for God, who is eternal holy one, there's an exceptional meaning of holy. We are set aside. And Paul's call here is basically... To live out your calling for holy living, then this pro these promises will be yours. Do not get mixed with the world in such a way that you are unidentifiable. You are not one of the ten apples. You are one apple set apart. In conclusion, how then shall we live in today's secular world, in verse 1 of chapter 7, he reiterates command this way. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let's think about these phrases clearly. What it means to live a holy living in to today's world. The first one is a be separate. Not radically isolate yourself. Do not be a hermit. Do not be a, some kind of rabbit hole Christians. But be separate means be radically different where you are as salt and light. What does it look like? It's not do's and don'ts so much, but when you think about why is this person forgive in such a way that it's nonsensical? Why is this person choose a lesser paying job? 
Because of what? Why is this person doesn't want to go along with this condition for promotion to be BP in, in, in our company? All he or she has to do is a little bit of a compromise, a little bit of lie. Cleanse ourselves is literally to live out the radical difference without compromise. I'm going to just be very practical on this one. As a Christian, you should not go to psychic and you should not even read through the horoscope or tarot cards or for the entertainment of things. I remember as a youth pastor, the, our teenage boys, Christian teenage girls, oh, this was actually college ministry. They were playing with the Ouija board. And the weird things happened. They got so scared, they stopped, and in the middle of the game, they called me. <laughs> Could you come? We're so scared. These things are moving all by itself. And, and I came and confronted them. Do you belong to Christ or do you belong to the devil? Would you keep doing this? Oh, they were, they were so teachable. They're listening to everything. That <laughs> I... How about bringing to us? Oh, yeah, of course, there are a lot of gray areas, but you know what worldly is. Typically, there's nothing wrong with dance, but if you start keep on going to dance club, what happens is you get messed up. You gamble a little bit for fun, and you're getting into it and addicted. As a Christians, cleanse ourselves, meaning that we are radically different. We need to be living out this calling, not to be so different for the weird sake, but the world to see the saltiness, taste the saltiness, and see the light. And I know a person who turned down the, turned down the offer because he was working with the company co-workers, sharing the gospel. And then one of them became Christian. They're studying, having, having Bible study. Another offer that he had, I cannot leave them. This is what, this is what it means to live a holy living. Finally, bringing holiness to completion is that we stay in the course day in, day out, whenever we are motivated, encouraged, and others encourage us, or we just feel discouraged. The reality of Christian life, we have a sorrowfulness, right? And uh, each family has ups and downs, and my father-in-law is, is, is in the hospital. We had a little scare moment. And Kate and I are really thinking that he doesn't have many years. We're fearful of that. My, my application into this, my living out holiness is not so much of that I look different to, to you guys, but to my father-in-law and you know, mother-in-law, that, that, that they could see and, and smell the aroma of Christ from me rather than this antsy, intense, anal guy who gets temperous. But what it means to be Christ-like. And do pray for me. 
I feel far from it. I know in my head what, what I need to do. But that is my place of holy living. And I ask you a question. Have you been trying so hard to become like your worldly friends that you do not stand out? That to such a point that you are looking for savviness and relevance in your life so much. Christ's call is radical difference. I know I shared this quote before. I want to conclude with Martin Lloyd-Jones' quote. This is the in introduction of Sermon on the Mount, his famous uh, book. Lloyd-Jones writes, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably, invariably attracts it. It is then the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. That is how revival comes. That must also be true of us as individuals. It should not be our ambition to be as much like everybody else as we can, though we happen to be Christian, but rather to be as different from everybody who is not a Christian as we can possibly be. Our ambition should be to be like Christ. The more like him, the better. The more and the more like him we become, the more we shall be unlike everybody who is not a Christian. Lord Jones is so right. And I pray for Crossway and for you and me to live out this holy calling, the radical difference of Christ-likeness in this world. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you so much for the reminder that we received this morning. It is convicting, it's sharp, uh, somewhat offensive to some of us. But I know it is true. So make us your people and keep us holy and separate from the world that we might live out the radical countercultural difference in this world where we live in our labor, in our works, in our friendships with unchristian friends. Make crossway, be salt and light, and use us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.